you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Lisa Pruden. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds are carefully stewarded to generate money that supports charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well endowed. In the fall of 2020, ECF was approached by leaders from Alberta's South Sudanese community. At the time, more than a dozen South Sudanese Albertans had died from a range of causes exacerbated by the start of the pandemic. Families were forced to sell their homes to pay for proper funerals for their loved ones. ECF was able to provide financial support to help with burial costs in 2020. However, the deaths have since risen to around 30. As we looked into the underlying causes of these deaths, it was imperative that we work with the families to help tell their stories. These stories speak to larger issues that have had broad impacts for more than 15,000 South Sudanese people in Alberta and for everyone in this province. On September 6th, we will release South Sudan Local Time, a three-part mini-documentary series that explores the experience of the South Sudanese diaspora in Alberta. In preparation for the release of South Sudan Local Time, we sent our correspondent Omar Salafu to speak with Dr. Malwin Akot, one of the leaders of the South Sudanese community in Edmonton. In the interview you are about to hear, Dr. Malwin Akot provides more context for the history of the civil war between North and South Sudan, and sheds light on some of the underlying causes of the deaths within the South Sudanese community. Let's take a listen to Omar's chat with Dr. Akot. The first thing I want to do is start with an introduction. So if you just want to tell listeners um, a bit about yourself, who you are, and, and what your background is. Uh, my name is Mawien Akot. Uh, I'm one of the South Sudanese national leaders uh, here in the city of Edmonton. Uh, my background is uh, family medicine. I have been practicing in Saskatchewan as well as in South Sudan. South Sudan is a relatively young country in terms of being recognized by the international community, but it's still part of Sudan. Um, do you want to tell listeners a little bit more about the history of Sudan as a larger country and, and the split between South Sudan and, and, and North Sudan? Sudan actually was uh, one of the largest countries in Africa. Uh, it's uh, bordered by eight countries. Sudan has been war by with itself, civil war since 1956. That was um, when Sudan gained independence from the British uh, colonial system. Now, soon after the British left, actually, the war started in 1955, which is a year before the British left in 1956. So when the British left Sudan, we were already in war with the northern part of the country. And uh, the reason was South Sudan is mainly African and uh, has Christianity religion, uh, whereas Northern Sudan is predominantly Arab and uh, predominantly Muslim. So there was nothing that united us, uh, to be honest. Plus, when, <clears throat> when the British was ruling uh, Sudan, 
they have actually uh, made a landlock policy where the northerns were not allowed to come into South Sudan without permission because they used to come and take us as slaves. The uh, uh, liberation movement at that time was called Anyanya One. Uh, they fought for 17 years from 1955 until 1972 when Addis Ababa Agreement was signed by <clears throat> late President Jafar Mohamed Numeri and uh, Anyanya One leader uh, Joseph Lako. That ended 17 years of war and then what happened after that was a period of tranquility uh, where South Sudan was given uh, regional autonomy. So we had our own parliament, we had our own government, uh, sort of like, you know, what is now with Quebec within Canada. Uh, we were good with that until 1983 when uh, the northern ruling elites uh, all of a sudden dissolved the regional autonomy. Most of South Sudanese were targeted. Uh, for example, if somebody steals, uh, they cut their hand and their leg. You know, if you commit adultery, you are stoned to death. People were being ha hanged, you know, in the uh, uh, football courts. And it was, it was very, very tragic. So by then, uh, our people rebelled. And uh, they said it is Anyanya too. So the first one in 1955 was Anyanya one, and then the second one was Anyanya two, uh, until uh, late uh, visionary leader John Garangdi Mabior uh, joined the movement, the, the movement, and he formed what is called Sa uh, Sudan Sudan People's Liberation Movement and Sudan People's Liberation Army. Uh, unlike Anyanya 1 and Anyanya 2 who were fighting for regional autonomy, uh, John Garang actually had a vision to rule the whole Sudan because uh, the black people are the majority. Uh, that war continued from 1983 until 2005 when a peace agreement was signed in Navasha, Kenya. It was after a very intense uh, diplomatic pressure from the international community because uh, in that 22 uh, long civil war, South Sudan has lost 2.5 million people. And the world was seeing, you know, how our people were being enslaved again. We were being targeted, uh, prosecuted. That's why most of us ended up coming to Canada, uh, United States and, you know, other Western countries. So actually the United uh, Nations Security Council held a meeting for the first time in Africa, in Nairobi, Kenya, to advocate for the peace in the South Sudan. So that peace was signed. There was a period of uh, uh, transitional government. Uh, we'd, we'd wanted to try to see if the unity was made attractive. Basically for six years, uh, nothing happened. Uh, the original leader, Dr. John Garang Dimabur, was uh, killed in a helicopter crash. Nobody knew whether he was assassinated or was it just a mere accident. And, uh, and the South Sudanese went for referendum 
2011. So on July 9, 2011, uh, the votes were count and 98% of South Sudanese opted for separation. So we became the world's youngest nation, uh, number 198 in the United Nations. Within South Sudan today, there are several ethnic groups that really, I guess, populate the country. Do you want to maybe explain the origins of some of these ethnic groups and how they, they coexist within South Sudan today? Yeah, so South Sudan has uh, about uh, 64 tribes. Uh, 64 tribes, majority of, uh, of people actually in South Sudan are, are driven from what we call Nilotic uh, tribes, uh, like Dinka, uh, Nuer, Chulu, uh, or the Lua-speaking group. So for Dinka, Dinka is the largest uh, uh, tribe in, in the South Sudan, as a matter of fact, in the whole Sudan, even before the separation, followed by the Nuer. There are also tribes which identify themselves as uh, Equatorians. Yeah, these tribes uh, are not, well, some of them are not Nilotics, uh, but some are. And basically, uh, you would find those small, small tribes uh, in the Equatorial region. Um, and I guess to protect themselves from the, you know, uh, from the larger groups, they sort of uh, amalgamated themselves and called themselves uh, Equatorians. But, uh, yeah, uh, those are different tribes. Each tribe speaks their own language. Um, within Dinka, there are sub-tribes sub or sub-clans. The same thing with the Nuer. <coughs> Uh, Dinka and Nuer were thought to have been migrating from the northern part of Sudan or even as far as coming from, uh, from Egypt uh, in those ancient days and they were following the river Nile. Most of the people, you know, like the Dinkas and the Nuer, they, they are cattle herders. They, uh, <coughs> you know, they, they raise cattle and they take pride in their cows. Uh, they use them for a lot of things, including paying for the dowry for the for the marriage. And uh, yeah, like for me, when I when I married my wife, I paid fifty cows. So that's uh, that's the dowry, which was actually at a very low end. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So so I guess to humor you, what what would be the high end? What would be a good price? Oh, it, uh, it can go up to three hundred. Uh, 300 cows, 400 cows. Yeah, yeah. It, d it depends on the size of uh, the family where you're getting married from, you know, because the more the, uh, uh, you know, the bride's uh, family is larger, the more cows are demanded because, you know, uh, each one has to be given their share. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> So that's it, yeah. Yeah, each person time. Yes, they have to be given their share, and yeah. according to the hierarchy, you know, if if you are an older person, then you get more cows and and so forth. Do you want to explain um, the different ways and and how many people from the South Sudanese community came to Canada to begin with? 
Yes, uh, South Sudanese uh, people came to Canada. Uh, there were some few people that came uh, very early, maybe 1980s. Most of us started arriving here in Canada around 1996-1997. Um, I personally came with my family in 1998. Uh, but our number was not uh, this huge. So majority of uh, South Sudanese were resettled uh, in Alberta, actually. Uh, because at that time, Alberta economy was booming. You know, the oil industry, uh, South Sudanese found opportunities here. And so even those who were settled uh, in the eastern part of, uh, of Canada uh, came to, to Alberta, mainly in Calgary. Um, I came to Edmonton in, two, in 2000 for training at the university hospital. Yeah, but by then even... Uh, South, most South Sudanese didn't like uh, Edmonton. <laughs> they, yeah, they, they, they like uh, Calgary so much. And, uh, you know, unless you come here for something that is crucial, like, you know, when I came for training in the nuclear medicine department, uh, then, yeah, you could, you could stay here. Uh, but slowly, slowly, <clears throat> actually the population of South Sudanese in Edmonton started growing. Yeah, because some were in Calgary, they, they've moved to Edmonton. The, the job market wasn't that bad, actually, in, in Edmonton as well. So many came and they settled here. And uh, I could see now some families have been here for over 22 years. And there is a, there is a large South Sudanese community here in the city of Edmonton and the surrounding areas. Some... South Sudanese are in central Alberta in the Red Deer area. Some are in Brooks, uh, where they work in Lakeside uh, Meat Factory. And some are in Lodbridge and uh, Medicine Hut, as well as uh, uh, Grand Prairie. So that's basically where, where, where we are located in the province. What was the expectation? What were people thinking before coming to this country to live? But also, what were maybe some of the things that people were promised um, from the refugee process or the immigration process? Um, actually, the, um, th there were very, very high expectations. You know, people, uh, we, we see a lot of, you know, movies uh, about Canada, United States, and it looks like it's, uh, you know, paradise on earth. Uh, except for the snow that we didn't, we didn't like about Canada. But uh, there were high expectations that, you know, we would be coming here, we would have better future for ourselves, for our families. Uh, Canada uh, was, you know, uh, preferred because of the security reasons. Uh, we didn't want, like myself, uh, my wife didn't want us to go to the States, although we got accepted to go to Boston. But uh, she said, you know, we have a young uh, child. Our, our daughter was only six months, and she said, we ran away from war. We cannot go to the places where there are mass uh, shootings, like uh, in the States. The weather, we can, <coughs> we can adapt. Yeah, so majority of South Sudanese actually came to Canada uh, some of the things that people 
were encouraged to come to Canada is uh, the idea that uh, education is free, uh, healthcare is free, and uh, also if you if you have low level of education, you can do the upgrading, uh, and th and that that ex actually happened when we came to. Uh, to Alberta. By then there was uh, student finance that uh, gave grants. It's not loan. So some people started right from scratch, even from grade one, and they made their, their way now. They are university graduates. So we, we have a very large community, and uh, unfortunately uh, our people don't participate much in census and all this, and uh, those are part of the things that we are going to do when we restructure the community. Uh, we're going to have a comprehensive uh, demographic survey to see how many of us are uh, in the province. And But right now, the estimates are around uh, 20,000 or maybe even more. So, so quite a significant population. Yeah. Yes, actually, the South Sudanese are the second largest African community in Alberta. I think the Somalis are majority and then come South Sudanese. But most of the Somalis actually uh, tend to migrate to to Eastern Canada. Yeah, whereas most of uh, South Sudanese tend to migrate to, to Western Canada. Since arriving in Canada, now that people have been living here for, for decades, what has the reality been um, and, and what is the reality of the community right now? Um, in, in, in people's lives? Well, you know, the reality of the community uh, is that one of a, of a tragedy, heartache, and sad stories. Uh, unlike, you know, the first year, few years that we were here, uh, where people were engaged in a very uh, ambitious uh, things to build their lives and, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, for, for example, working or going to school, uh, things start to shatter a little bit. Uh, and families, which were the nucleus of the South Sudanese community, started to disintegrate. Um, I blame this uh, mostly to the cultural shock that uh, we had as a community. As I told you before, we had people that came from, say, uh, Egypt, like myself. I came from Egypt. I was a university student. My uh, my wife uh, was in uh, in school as well. Uh, some people came directly from the refugee camps. They did not have any clue of where they're coming to, so a lot of uh, a lot of people got into trouble with the law. And uh, with that comes, you know, criminal record, lack of employment, um, you know, some bitterness within the family because, you know, either a man or a woman will say, well, this person destroyed my life. Uh, and uh, we, were, we were not properly integrated in the Canadian society. So all the things that we, we were relying on is our internal orientation as as a community so you know i would i would probably say you know to somebody oh i went and i got uh, this place where there is a, a good opportunity and that person will come and go and 
uh, tried and then kill another person. Uh, so <clears throat> that that is how we were relying. Uh, we weren't given proper orientation by the government. Uh, we were just thrown into a huge uh, cultural gap uh, where we came you know, from places that uh, are so different uh, with Canada in terms of uh, laws, in terms of expectations. This uh, young generation or the first generation South Sudanese have what uh, I call crisis of identity. You know, they, they don't know uh, exactly where they belong because when they try to fit into the Canadian uh, society, uh, they, they are pushed, they are pushed back. In terms of the expectations, yeah, I think the expectations now are getting, we're getting to be realistic, you know, because uh, especially as you've seen with us losing a lot of our young people, uh, you know, with many people now beginning to realize, well, Canada is not paradise on earth. Uh, so the expectations are getting lower. We're starting to to be realistic, uh, but again, it it depends on on who you talk to. Whether this person uh, is he a new newcomer, because there are still even uh, these days uh, people migrate. Uh, those who are sponsored by their family members, uh, for example. We're sponsoring four of our uh, relatives in Kenya now. So it was just because of the COVID, otherwise they would be here. So there is a still that transition. But uh, I think those who come now uh, get a little bit uh, better orientation than, than those of us who came very early. But, it's, but it's still there is a, a lot of negative orientation. You know, uh, there is still a lot of negative orientation, and uh, some of us believe that they have actually understood how the Canadian system works, but uh, that again is a falsehood because they, they're not getting it in the right way. The communities are still uh, not integrated in the Canadian society. We, we, we're still just a close net community that is wrangling within itself. Uh, you know, we, we're, we're, we're living in Canada, but actually not in Canada. Do you, you understand what I mean? You know, you'd, you'd find some people now that are sleeping on the floor, you know, for years. They've been in Canada for maybe 15, 20 years, but they never sleep on a bed. Uh, it, it, it sounds a little bit strange. Yeah, but then, and that's how we sleep back home. You know, you have something on the floor and then you sleep on, on that. Yeah, so again, you know, in terms of dealing with, with the system, we're, we're dealing within our own South Sudanese mentality. COVID-19 has shown how much vulnerable we are as a community. Uh, in the past, there were a lot of the same problems were there, but they were not magnified the way COVID-19 did magnify them. 
for example, a lot of our young people were working in the oil fields, and in, on those sites, they get tested for drugs and alcohol. And because they, they need income for themselves and their families, they comply with the, with the requirements there. Now comes COVID-19, everything is shut down. All these young people are doing is, you know, using and, and drinking. And so we saw a lot of uh, overdoses uh, that were, were not uh, apparent before, before COVID. We're going to be sharing a three-part mini-series that you were very prominently featured in and, um, yeah, sharing some of these stories. What do you hope, um, I guess, maybe will come out of this um, once we start really pushing out um, what the community has to say? What do you hope will happen or, or what do you hope maybe to accomplish? What we hope as a community to see coming out of this documentary is actually to highlight our stories, to, to bring attention you know, to our community so that we, we are better assisted, uh, so that some, something like this shouldn't happen uh, in Canada here. You know, as you can see, you go onto the cemetery. We're, we are a young community in Canada, and we are already filling the cemeteries you know, with, with our young people. So I'm, I'm sure uh, many people don't know what is happening. And when they see the documentary, uh, I hope they will realize that uh, this community is a community that deserves to be helped. Uh, because the children or the young people that are dying, like I told you before, they, most of them were born here. You know, they're Canadian citizens by birth. Uh, they identify more with the Canadian system rather than the South Sudanese. And if they are assisted, they, they can be the next future generation of, uh, of Edmonton or Canada as a whole. Yeah, so why, why are they left behind? So we'll see if it is because the story was not, uh, was not out there then we will know when the story gets out, would there be some impact? I hope and I pray that there would be some positive outcome from this documentary. Thank you. Thank you to Omar Salafu for bringing us that story. And thank you to Dr. Malwin Akot for sharing his time and experience with us. We would also like to give a special thanks to the production team behind South Sudan Local Time, including Sheena Rossiter and Sandro Silva. Omar Salafu is also a co-director of the miniseries. The South Sudan Local Time mini-documentary series will be published on September 6th. You can find it at ecfoundation.org, and we'll include the link in our show notes. And you'll also be able to find links to the latest on our blog and to upcoming granting deadlines and funding opportunities. Be sure to check those out to see if you or someone you know could be eligible for one of our grants. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for sharing your time with us. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with everyone you know. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Sharing the show and leaving reviews are a great way to help new listeners find us. You can also connect with us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Lisa Pruden. Until, Until next time. time. 
The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. This episode was edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at BECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.